When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back in Crioso to the Welsh History Podcast, episode 176, Our Known Fidelity. In past episodes, we have mentioned how the Parliament played such a key role in Wales and Britain as a whole in this period. The origins of the Parliament of England came originally from the Anglo-Saxon Witan, an assembly which numbered anywhere from 25 to 100 of bishops, abbots, earlmen, and thanes. The Witan met regularly during the religious holy days and at times of need. This came about because of the feeling that the king of the new United England needed something that allowed him to gather leaders from across the country rather than in times of the heptarchy where the kings would meet all those who desired an audience. After the Norman conquest, the idea of the Witan continued to exist under the name Great Council or Magnum Concilium in Latin. These councils would continue to exist until the Magna Carta, which forced the establishment of a more formal parliament. The humbling of King John created a wall between the monarch and total control of the country that, for some, sat uneasily with royal prerogative. Often, stronger kings got what they wanted through force of will, sometimes with military success, and sometimes with simple bloody-mindedness and a willingness to kill all those who might oppose them. The chief duty of the council was to approve taxes proposed by the crown. In many cases, however, the council demanded redress of the people, read largely the nobles' grievances, before proceeding to vote on taxation. Thus, it developed legislative powers. As such, this created a knife's edge of conflict between those two sides, the nobility who wanted to curb the monarch and the monarch who, of course, saw these councils as a nuisance to their objectives. With the establishment of the parliament, the nobility had much more say in the running of government, and simply because they had firmer control of the taxing powers. These are usually needed if you wanted to carry on wars, among other things. Now, to go back briefly to the Anglo-Saxon reason for the Witan, it wasn't just because of financial concerns or meeting the people. It was also down to the fact that in Anglo-Saxon tradition, there was no such thing as inheritance by primogenitor. You didn't immediately become the king because you were born to the king. It was a case that you had to be effectively elected by the Witan or this collection of upper-class people to the position. Something, of course, that went away when the Normans came because, of course, William weren't having none of that. But nonetheless, the argument had already been put in place that this council would have a lot more control than might have happened in, say, France or Germany or Rome or any of those places where that 
level of interaction between a legislative branch and another just didn't exist. The parliament, of course, was not independent of the royalty and only sat when they were authorized to finance these bills for the king. This meant that if a king could get away with it, they might completely avoid needing these men to gather and as in the case of Charles and James, there was an 11-year gap between sittings. This massive space came down to, effectively, the monarch not wanting to deal with Parliament and trying to find ways to fund things through his own means rather than appealing to the nobility who didn't trust him and didn't like him. And uh, all of that led to this problem. That did mean that the monarch, however, could do little in the ways of affairs of state because if he needed funding for wars or great projects, he needed the parliament to agree, meaning that he had to call it out. After spending these 11 years not calling parliament together and trying to rule without them, Charles was finally forced to seek financial help. Charles, in 1637, attempted to introduce a modified version of the English Book of Common Prayer in Scotland. That provoked a wave of riots, beginning at the Church of St. Gillies in Edinburgh. These riots then turned into a proper revolt. A group that labeled themselves as the National Covenant declared a radical manifesto against the personal rule of Charles. That justified a revolt against the interfering sovereign. The Covenanters, as they then called themselves, became quickly able to overwhelm poorly trained English troops, forcing the king to sign a peace treaty with them at Berwick on June 18, 1639. Angered and frustrated at his failure, Charles wanted to defeat these rebels rather than deal with them. He was then forced to call Parliament together to meet the demands of the financial crisis he was having trying to finance this war. He saw it as the only way he would be able to raise money in a quick fashion to deal with this problem. However, Parliament was assembled in April of 1640, but lasted only three weeks, and hence became known as the Short Parliament. The House of Commons was willing to vote a huge sum that the king would need to finance his war against these Scots, but not until their own grievances were dealt with something that uh, was untenable as far as Charles was concerned. Furious, Charles dissolved the Parliament immediately. Instead of an armed force of well-trained troops, Charles was forced to send ill-armed and poorly paid forces to the north to fight the Scots in what was then called the Second Bishop's War. It once more was a spectacular failure, and as on August 20th, 1640, the Covenanters invaded England for the second time, taking Newcastle following the Battle of Newburn on August 28th. Demoralized and humiliated, the king had no alternative but to negotiate and, at the insistence of the Scots, recall the Parliament. The long Parliament would begin on November 3rd, 1640, and continue for years to come, to the surprise of all. In that time, hostility would lead to open conflict, yet Welsh support remained for their monarch. As mentioned previously, support in Wales for the monarch and the representatives of Wales in the Parliament 
continued to represent the royalist side quite consistently. Not everybody, as we mentioned previously, but certainly enough that the king must have felt fairly confident. You know, only one of Wales' representatives in the Long Parliament can be identified even as a supporter of Puritan reform. So that means that 26 of 27 were definitely on the royalist side. In a rather unique move for the time, Welsh representatives presented a petition to the House of Commons on the 5th of March, 1642. In what was likely a robust claim, the petition held that 30,000 people from six counties of North Wales endorsed the opinion presented. These individuals then asserted their position to be the unanimous and undivided request and vote of the whole country something that obviously was, at the very least, a very ambitious claim. This particular petition argued against the Puritan proposal to abolish leadership of the church government by bishops. The Puritan Manifesto from 1572 had advocated a greater direct reliance on the authority of the scriptures, and importantly to this petition, that the church governance be led by ministers and elders rather than by the higher order of clergy, such as bishops. This ideal, of course, goes against the early Anglican functionaries in the way that the church worked, because, of course, the early Anglican religion was modeled on the Catholic system, so thus there was levels of hierarchy within the church, whereas within the Puritan and Calvinistic examples, there was less hierarchy and more dependence on the inerrancy of the Bible and on a belief around, built around the, the idea of the common believers having the common faith, so thus all had a right to be represented and all were a part of the way the faith worked, so that you worked your Christian religion out amongst yourselves first and foremost, your relationship with God, not with the authority. This was long-standing in the Puritan understanding and something that they had appealed to even going back to the time of Queen Elizabeth. And when they did take this particular manifesto to Queen Elizabeth, they were then imprisoned and anyone who supported it were either exiled from the country or found and dealt with as quickly as possible. It did not end well for you to be, get on the bad side of Elizabeth I. The Welsh conformists suggested that the mere report of such alterations had disturbed them greatly and feared that what it would mean for the church. The petitioners stressed that the British element, the mention of the episcopacy or the bishopric, articulated a particular sense of Welsh pride and loyalty to the church. It was the idea that it was modeled on old ideas, an old concept of Christianity, thus going back to the origins of Christianity in Wales in their assumption. The petition had been labeled with three feathers and the Ich Din, or I Serve, placed on it in the emblem of the Prince of Wales, who, of course, his initials were then included with it, these symbols of the Prince of Wales and the loyalty to those who signed this petition made it clear where they saw themselves in the debate between the Parliament and the Crown, something that was critically important in this argument and something that would leave no questioners if you knew anything about the situation. If you're like me and eating healthy is a bit of a problem, let me bend your ear a little bit 
to eat stress-free this spring with Factors delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to eat in just two minutes. Choose from a weekly menu of 35 options, including popular options like Calorie Smart, Kato, Protein Plus, or Vegan and Veggies. Also, discover more than 60 add-ons every week, like breakfast, on-the-go lunch, snacks, and beverages to help you stay fueled and feel good all day long. What are you waiting for? Get started today and fuel up for your springtime goals. Get chef-prepared meals on the table in two minutes with Factors ready-to-eat meals so you can get back to doing what you love this spring. Also, if you're looking for gourmet meals, try meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, truffle butter, broccolini, and asparagus. We're celebrating Earth Day all month long. Look out for the Earth Month Eats badge on the menu for our lowest carbon footprint meals. Head to factormeals.com slash welshhistorypod50 and use the code welshhistorypod50 to get 50% off your first month plus 20% off your next month. That's code welshhistorypod50 at factormeals.com slash welshhistorypod50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. Hey, podcast listeners, I'm Paul Brandis introducing my podcast, Countdown to Dallas. It's a fascinating, in-depth look at the seemingly unconnected events that led to the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. It's based on my book of the same title. In that book and in this podcast, I go all the way back to 1939, when Lee Harvey Oswald was born into a troubled and dysfunctional family. I'll follow his transient and often violent teenage years and young adulthood, painting a fuller picture of the man who would later become Kennedy's killer. I also take a look at events unfolding in that era, like Cuba and Vietnam, and I'll unpack the conspiracy theories, too, not one of which has ever been conclusively proven. Subscribe to Countdown to Dallas at evergreenpodcasts.com or your favorite listening app, October 31st. King Charles's commitment to resisting religious reform and defending the status quo in the church in the face of political pressure encouraged traditional Welsh to support his cause. The combining of king, culture, and faith together built a powerful anchor for those who fought for Charles and against the Parliament. As much as this was the very traditional English war, for some in the monarchist camp, it was also about preserving the traditional Welsh culture that had been supported through the rise of Anglicanism. These positive impulses to support the king in Wales were then strengthened by a very modern sense of the negative campaigning that became associated with the parliamentary coalition. Anti-Welsh pamphlets emerged from the London presses going through Bristol and then into Pembrokeshire in late 1641 and early 1643 in the midst of the beginnings of the war, which then drove more anger amongst the Welsh who already had no love of the parliamentary side in any respect. These pamphlets drew on established stereotypes, ridiculing and vilifying the Welsh as devious, uninformed, and plain dumb. The tactics of attacking the Welsh as a people, instead of the ideas they professed, 
damaged the parliamentarians in Wales, likely keeping many on the monarchist side who might not have been natural allies otherwise. This anger would be followed up with yet another petition presented on the 12th of February, 1642, this just a few months before the war broke out, in the name of many hundreds of thousands within the 13 shires of Wales, end quote. It observed and decried the trend towards defaming Welsh people and described how they were, in quotes, disrespected and shamefully derided with libidinous attempts more than any other country whatsoever, end quote. Anger was now settling amongst those who saw themselves in the coming conflict in terms of being in the middle of a cultural war as well as a political and religious one. The leadership in Wales was so upset that they created this petition to demand the suppression of, in quotes, this epidemical derision of us, end quote, which was seen as, quote, nothing else but a scorning detestation to our known fidelity, end quote. The fidelity in question, of course, was clearly the Welsh affection for the king rather than the parliament. In polite language of politics, or as polite as we're going to get, they were seeking an end to the racist talk and questions of loyalty. While it was obviously difficult to say how much of the general Welsh public knew or understood what was being said by various sections of the English society, there is no doubt that they supported the king. Reports and personal writings agreed that most in Wales were fervently pro-royalist from early on to the lead-up into the start of the Civil War. Only small portions of the country showed any sense of loyalty to the Parliament, such as areas in Pembroke. Why was Pembroke different? Some contend that it was a combination of the culture being strongly English in the area and that it had been dominated by the English since the conquest. Some contend that there were three main towns in the area that were culprits, I wouldn't think would be the right word, but were sort of the lead of this. They were Haverford West, Pembroke, and Tenby, which were involved in a great deal of trade with the Puritan-dominated ports of Bristol, which, of course, made it much easier for the parliamentarians to influence them because these shires had a higher percentage of English language, which would also better be able to read the arguments presented by the Parliament, who only printed their pamphlets in English, which would have been a hindrance in other parts of the country. Others in Wales did not feel close to the residents of Pembrokeshire and the region around it, and seemed to classify them as outside of Wales. In part, this was because their loyalty to the Parliament and because they were against the majority. As one local author from the county put it in 1646, quote, it was commonly spoken by the best sort of gentlemen that the Welsh were the true Britons, and His Majesty best and only orthodox subjects, and Pembrokeshire for the most part Saxons and bastards, end quote. Other reasons for the division was that the Earl of Pembroke, Philip Herbert, the most important supporter of the Parliament in South Wales and largest landowner in Glamorgan, happened to be a significant portion of the authority and leadership there. Herbert's support meant that many were influenced 
to stand with their leading landholder, and this also may have created some issues in the South in general, because, of course, he owned land both in Pembrokeshire, but also in Cardiff. He, in fact, owned the castle there and would take a major place as being a kickoff point for a lot of the war from the parliamentary side into Wales. While the majority of Wales seems to be royalist, there were, as I said, exceptions to that rule. Families were divided on who they should support. Sometimes that became more and more important as the War of Words became one of guns. William Fielding, Earl of Denbigh, and a member of the Council of Wales, joined the king's army soon after war was declared. However, his son Basil refused to follow his father's example and eventually decided to fight for the Parliament. Thomas Middleton, MP for Denbyshire and owner of a considerable amount of land surrounding his castle and church, was a devout Puritan, which would put him firmly, obviously, in the parliamentary camp. Robert Devereux, on the other hand, Earl of Essex, who also owned large estates in Carmarthenshire, was a strong opponent of Charles as well. At the beginning of the Civil War, the Earl of Essex was appointed General-in-Chief of the Parliamentary Army, a key and critical role. While a greater number of the supporters of the Parliament in Wales were in the South, that was not exclusive, and some of them weren't even exclusive to households. Even amongst married couples, there were not always unity on which side to support. For example, John Bodenville of Anglesey became a colonel in the king's army. Meanwhile, his wife Anne supported the parliament. This created so much strife in their home that John, afraid that his wife would influence the religion and political views of his three children, demanded that they be taken away from her and placed in the care of his mother. Thus, you can see how divisive and dividing this would be and how often this was literally a civil war amongst family and amongst people, no matter where they were from, no matter what they were doing in all of Wales, England, Scotland, and Ireland. All of these territories and all of these countries would be faced with making decisions based on their support or opposition to the various sides. This created a massive problem for everyone, and the king would slowly become more and more dependent on his Welsh subjects to make up his military, make up his supporters, fund his war, and as we will get into at a later date, this then created a level of problems for castles in Wales, which for the last nearly 150 years, hadn't been used for any sort of battles, were now all of a sudden being brought back, but not into battles where there's arrows and swords, but in battles where now guns are involved and cannons are definitely involved. And importantly enough, all of this would work to continue to destroy the fabric of the region, the fabric of society, and create divisions that would continue in some cases, into this day, if we look at the results of immigration from these countries into places like the United States and Canada and Australia and New Zealand and all over the world that came out of the dissatisfaction that results in the conclusion of this entire 
series of wars, counter wars, uprisings, counter uprisings, and all of the problems that'll come over the next century as England tries to resolve its political position in the world and try and maintain its self-control before it enters into being a more worldly and more influential empire. It still has to deal with the consequences of the disagreements that have carried forward pretty much from the founding of the conquest. And uh, with that, I'd like to thank you all for listening today. And uh, as a reminder, we are now a member of the Evergreen Podcast Network. Be sure to check them out. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at the Welsh History Podcast at gmail.com. You can also reach out to me on Twitter at Welsh History Pod or on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Welsh History Podcast. And hey, if you feel like you have the ability to and you want to support the podcast, you can do that at uh, patreon.com forward slash Welsh History. Thank you all for listening. Have yourselves a great day. We'll talk to you later. Bye bye. Welsh History Podcast is a member of the Evergreen Podcast Network. To find more information on them, you can do so at evergreenpodcast.com. Thanks for listening. Hello, my name is Peter Zablocki, and I'm a historian, author, and college professor. I'm thrilled to invite you to check out Evergreen Network's History Shorts Podcast. Every Tuesday and Thursday, join me on a journey through time, exploring the little-known and hidden gems of history. In each bite-sized episode, I'll dive into my original research to bring you intriguing historical curiosities you've probably never heard of, uncovering the fascinating stories that have shaped our world, from forgotten figures to overlooked events. And the best part? I've condensed all this historical goodness into manageable chunks, perfect for your on-the-go lifestyle. Whether you're commuting to work or squeezing in a quick break, History Shorts fits into the little time you probably think you don't have. Subscribe now and never miss an episode of the History Shorts podcast, available wherever you get your podcasts.